The Egyptian Revolution was the high point of what became known as the Arab Spring, the idea of democracy spreading across the Middle East. Regimes across the region have used all manner of different mechanisms of control to ensure their survival. Policymaking is largely dictated from above. Gifts, large handouts to, to public officials. I think there's also some evidence that external support for the status quo for authoritarian regimes enables rulers to act with impunity, which hinders bureaucratic reform. Welcome to the Klingendal podcast, Guns, Seats and Protests, Political Reform in the Middle East. The first episode discusses challenges obstacles and opportunities for political change in the region, with leading academics. Over the last 10 years, hundreds of thousands of citizens in the Middle East have taken to the streets to demand political change. A popular slogan was, the people want the end of the regime, which summarizes their demands well. Citizens do not only want to boot particular rulers of politicians out, but call for a broader systemic change away from authoritarianism, kleptocracy and poor governance. In 2019 and 2020, demonstrators returned to the street once more. Large protests took place in Algeria, Lebanon, Iraq and Sudan. This is the start of gathering of protesters in one of the districts in Sudan's capital, Khartoum. They're also out once again to voice their anger at the military takeover, which happened in late October, and which they say derailed Sudan's transition. Smaller demonstrations also occurred in Egypt, Iran and Jordan. Ongoing protests show that demands for systemic reform persist. Notably, mass protests occurred in countries where few citizens took to the streets in 2011. Ruling elites across the Middle East have largely proved themselves incapable of meeting the wide-ranging demands of the square. On the contrary, they have sought to contain such demands through a mix of repression, symbolic concessions, co-optation and greater public spending. For example, the Iraqi government provided greater public sector employment and benefits to Iraq's youth over the last years in a bid to dampen protests while the Iranian government violently repressed protest against an increase in fuel prices, among other issues, in November 2019. Either way, widespread resentment remains alive and kicking. As the causes of popular dissatisfaction with the quality of governance continue to exist throughout the Middle East, but change has proven difficult to set in motion. What could be attempted next? In other words, when might political reforms succeed? The question has puzzled political scientists who have focused on two key dimensions, demands for reform and supply of reform. Before delving into each, we need to clarify what we mean by political reform. By political reform, we mean upgrading the ability of political systems to produce the public goods, services, rights and duties that their constituents demand. Such upgrading can happen through administrative reform that upgrades implementation capabilities for better education, essential services, and access to justice, for example. Another way is to introduce policy reform that allows new problems to be addressed effectively, like climate change, corruption, or social justice, for example, based on comparative evidence and good practice. 
Finally, governance reforms can upgrade the rules for agenda setting and decision making in the political arena, for example by making them more inclusive and representative. All such reforms can happen locally, subnationally or nationally. Because of the scope and size of the socio-economic problems many countries in the Middle East face, we focus on governance reforms at the national level in this podcast. For political change to become possible, it requires social mobilisation. Crowded squares indicate a strong demand for reforms, but they can have a hard time articulating what they want in the form of an actionable policy agenda. Pressure for change does not originate only from the square. Professional associations, workers' unions and the diaspora can also play a role. Demand for change does not lead to positive results when a government does not want to, or cannot, supply reforms. To begin with, political reforms usually require support from parts of the ruling establishment to succeed. But its composition, attitude and behaviour vary from country to country. Some are large and heterogeneous, others small and cohesive, even limited to a single family in some cases. When the ruling coalition is large, it has many stakeholders whose interests usually diverge. This suggests some factions might be incentivized to side with citizen demands, especially when doing so can strengthen their own position. When the ruling coalition is small, divisions amongst its member are less frequent. This suggests that a more radical overthrow might be a more realistic reform strategy if a large number of citizens continue to be excluded from power. Hi, I'm Matteo Colombo, researcher at Trigendas Conflict Unit, and I would like to explore a bit more the different types of political orders in the Middle East. The first type of political order is majoritarian republics, like Israel and Turkey. These are countries where citizens participate freely in the elections, but minorities are not adequately protected from majority rule. In this context, reform-oriented citizens partially hail to social groups that are not dominant ideologically and ethnically. The second type of political order in the Middle East are quasi-democratic sectarian states, like Lebanon and Iraq. In these countries, citizens participate in the election, but voting is at least partially skewed by ethno-sectarian mechanisms. Small elite cartels strongly influence electoral and governance systems. Ultimately, the system preserves incumbent politicians and authority figures. In quasi-sectarian states, reform-oriented citizens can be found across the board due to the substantial underperformance of the clientelist sectarian system. The third type are semi-authoritarian and authoritarian states, like Iran, Egypt or Jordan. These are countries where participation in the election and governance is limited. Political authority resides in bodies or persons whose legitimacy derives from military, religious, hereditary or revolutionary sources. The ruling coalition can be large or small. In these countries, ordinary people are essentially second-class citizens. They often voice demand for reforms, while the ruling elite tend to oppose change. The fourth type of political order in the Middle East are rentier monarchies. Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates fall into this category. 
In these countries, political power lies with a small ruling family that commands significant hydrocarbon rents. It maintains power by distributing social and economic benefit to citizens. Elites generally limit political reform distribute benefits to dampen bottom-up calls for change. Drawing on these categorizations, one can investigate which strategies ruling elites pursue when faced with demands for political reforms. We asked Simon Mabon, Professor of International Politics at Lancaster University. Since the Arab uprisings of 2011, regimes across the Middle East have been particularly concerned with ensuring their survival in the face of all manner of different challenges to their rule. This includes pro-democracy protests, in some cases challenges from Islamist movements such as the Muslim Brotherhood, Daesh, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, um, Salafi movements, and broader reimagining of, of regional politics driven by um perceived Iranian efforts to challenge the status quo of regional affairs. In the face of, of what is seen to be precarious politics, regimes across the region have used all manner of different mechanisms of control to ensure their survival. This ranges from the deployment of rent and the reimagining of social contracts to include uh, financial largesse, gifts, um, tax rebates, the uh, the deployment of, of huge amounts of money for public goods and services, public housing, and in some cases, large handouts to, to public officials across the Gulf states in particular. So rentier states, rentier monarchies have been able to use their financial largesse as a means of ensuring their survival, supporting uh, getting their support from, from key constituencies and ensuring that they, they maintain the survival. Of course, in other states that don't necessarily have this economic largesse, it's been slightly more challenging and different strategies of control have been used as a means of ensuring survival. In these cases, the, the biopolitical machineries of sovereign power have been used to, to their fullest as a means of ensuring survival. So, for instance, legal mechanisms have been deployed, states of emergency have been declared that will allow uh, regimes to limit freedom of speech, curtail the activities of civil society, and to, in some cases, strip individuals deemed challenging to the status quo of their citizenship. In Bahrain, for instance, almost a thousand people were... were um, were deprived of their citizenship, had their citizenship revoked between the years of 2011 and 2019. This was done in a mechanism to ensure the survival of the ruling al-Khalifa. Of course, elsewhere, the manipulation of societal divisions was used as a means of creating a divide and rule strategy of dividing the protests in Bahrain and elsewhere. Processes of sectarianization were used by rulers seeking to divide pro-democracy protests and creating this narrative of particular constituencies being manipulated by outside others or, or violent Islamist groups, for example. This process of divide and rule was central in preventing the widespread emergence of popular protests across a number of states, such as Bahrain and Syria and, and elsewhere. So there's lots of different mechanisms that have been used dependent on the context, dependent on the nature of political organization in these states. 
and contingent on the financial resources of regimes, the claims to legitimacy and the strength of those claims that they're able to make, and, and a number of other factors. In addition to ruling elite attitudes towards reform, bureaucratic preferences are also an important factor in shaping the supply of reform. Bureaucracies can boycott reform by getting in the way or supporting it. In some countries, bureaucracies can be too weak to implement policies effectively. To better understand the role of the national bureaucracies in reform process, we asked Melanie Kamat, director of the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs of Harvard University, to tell us more. What is the relationship between the bureaucracy and the ruling elite in the Middle East? To make a gross generalization, the Middle East is regarded as a region where the ruling elite and especially the ruler and his immediate circle have disproportionate influence. Policymaking is largely dictated from above and increasingly in many countries works to benefit the ruler's family and his cronies. I should note that I use the, the pronoun his because there's virtually no gender variation in top level political leadership across the Middle East. Even when policies emanate from legislatures, whose representatives in some contexts may be elected in relatively free elections. Uh, often these elections are marred by clientelism and patronage, but are relatively free in a pure electoral sense. Um, even in those contexts, uh, those policies are not necessarily implemented in impartial ways, um, resulting in a situation in which the rule of law is not widely respected across the region. In a related point, bureaucracies are not often regarded as quote unquote capable or particularly influential in the regulation and implementation of policies, which are by and large not executed again in impartial ways. Instead, the stereotype of bureaucracies in the Middle East is that they are weak, ineffective and overridden with corruption. Public opinion data supports this interpretation overall by showing that citizens by and large have little trust in government institutions, including in bureaucracies. Obviously, these points are sweeping generalizations and there's variation across the countries in the Middle East, and that's interesting in and of itself to, to look at. But in many national contexts in the region, citizens require connections or wasta to get something done and even to access their basic entitlements of citizenship. I also want to make a point that uh, formal measures of the rule of law and government effectiveness, again, vary across the region. And you will see that the wealthy Gulf monarchies tend to have much better scores, tend to have higher measures of rule of law and bureaucratic effectiveness. But in general, in the context of the Middle East, when is it possible for bureaucrats to initiate effective reforms? Uh, well, if we're talking about a gradual process, then it's not going to happen if politicians feel threatened. So if, if reform is occurring through a gradual process and we're not talking about a revolutionary break in the system, then any kinds of reform that, initi that are initiated have to be incremental and non-threatening to politicians' status quo. I think there's also some evidence that external support for the status quo for authoritarian regimes uh, enables rulers to act with impunity, which hinders bureaucratic reform, which hinders efforts by 
uh, reform-minded civil servants and even uh, non-state actors like civil society groups to really push for meaningful change. Uh, I have a working paper out with a colleague now that looks at the role of external support, including concessional loans in maintaining uh, authoritarian regimes inadvertently uh, in the Middle East. Um, is it possible for international financial institutions and other external actors to push for reform? Yes and no. Um, these institutions are certainly pushing anti-corruption agendas, but it's it remains to be seen whether they can really affect change. Without real domestic alternatives, incumbent elites are managing to hold on to power, and it's going to be very hard to exert this leverage externally. There's a lot of research that shows that even you know, the best of intentions of, you know, civil society and democracy promotion programs get distorted by incumbent, incumbent authoritarian rulers and, in fact, have the effect of entrenching them. So it's a difficult game to bring about uh, change when you're dealing with the political status quo. Finally, regional powers also play a role. Since geopolitical competition is intense across the region and authoritarian governments common, reforms in one country may be seen as a threat to the power structure in other countries and trigger intervention. Take, for example, the Saudi intervention in Bahrain in 2011 or Iran in Syria in the same year. So what can be done to support political reform in the Middle East? While demands for reforms have to be driven by a mix of a country's citizens and political elites, International actors can help remove obstacles against political change in several ways. First, international aid can play a role in nudging the decisions of authoritarian regimes by making it conditional on the passage of reforms. Another way is stimulating reform through more-for-more more offers. Both ways are unlikely to promote governance reform, but may help bring administrative or policy reforms about, mainly where these do not run against the vested interests of ruling elites. Second, international sanctions can message ruling elites that their response to protest is not appropriate if and when such responses violate human rights or other international commitments. Sanctions can be soft or hard. For example, an IMF refusal of a loan can serve as a sanction in international capital markets, impacting a country's ability to borrow. Also, soft boycotts and ostracism from international meetings and fora can signal disapproval. But tougher measures may at times require consideration, such as asset freezes, limiting mobility, or prohibiting forms of economic activity of ruling elite members. Third, international organizations or other countries can discreetly support reform-oriented groups or elites through programs to stimulate civic awareness, human rights defense, and press freedom. That's it for today. We hope you have enjoyed our discussion of dimensions and factors that will influence the supply of, and demand for, political reform in the Middle East.